time for Americans to grow up and become financially responsible. Let's talk about something important. If you're in it for the money, that's not a bad thing. Do you realize how much money he just saved us? This is The Financial Physician with Lou Scatigna. The Financial Physician. It's the fastest hour in Money Talk Radio. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hardworking people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates. This is financial advice you can take to the bank. He's your money man. Show me the money. Your source for straightforward, no-nonsense financial advice. Bring me your money questions, because I'm here to help. And now, here he is, the financial physician, America's money doctor, Lou Scatigna. Hello, my friends. How are you? Welcome to today's edition of the financial physician, Lou Scatigna here, certified financial planner. And your money doctor each and every Sunday, 7 to 9 a.m. right here on 92.7 WOBM or anytime at the podcast at thefinancialphysician.com. Uh, well, today's a special show because I am not actually here. This is a pre-recorded show and uh, I'm on vacation. I'm on a cruise. First cruise my wife and I are going on in a very, very long time. We're big cruisers. We, we love to cruise. Uh, we've probably been on 50 cruises, but... COVID came around, and uh, obviously the cruise industry shut down, and uh, then you they opened up, but you have to be vaccinated to go on, and finally now there's no vaccine limitations or anything else, so we're going on our first cruise uh, in three years. So today, I believe I am in Key West, Florida. So we have a pre-recorded show for you, the first half hour, some fresh stuff we're doing right now. Uh, the rest of the show, I have pulled some... Um, archived material, some some subjects that uh, I consider to be the best of Lou, so hopefully you'll get something out of it. I went through financial topics um, that we've covered in the past, and we're using those because we're using those segments. We pieced together a program for you. So we've got a really good two-hour show for you. A lot of things uh, I'm going to bring to you, a lot of financial stuff uh, that I think you're going to find interesting. I find it to be the best segments we've done uh, all year long. All right, let's start off today's program talking about your will. And one thing about wills, I would tell you, as my career progresses, um, I've been in financial services for 40 years now, Uh, AFM Investments, my financial planning and investment firm, uh, just turned 35 years old in October. Uh, So our client base has aged. Uh, my client base especially. I, I deal a lot with seniors. So 20 years ago, somebody retired at 65. You know, they're 85 now. Uh, they've been with me for a long, long time. And now we're dealing with end-of-life issues. And, of course, end-of-life issues, one of the most important things is your will and how you transfer your wealth from one generation to the other generation, to your kids usually. Uh, and this is where some things go really wrong. And in my book, uh, I write uh, uh, in the estate planning section, I say the will is a terrible place to keep secrets, right? And trust me on this. You don't want to keep secrets in your will. You don't want people to be surprised when your will is read that, oh, my God, you know, why is my one brother getting more than the other, the more than me, right? Uh, and wills and estates have a, a way of disrupting families. Let's just put it that way. And I've seen families totally disintegrate after mom dies. Now, when you're married, 
typically what happens, you pass away, your surviving spouse gets everything. It, it doesn't affect your kids really at all. But when you're single, now you have to make sure that your estate planning is done correctly. Because you have a generational transfer of wealth next, all right? Your money's going to go from your household, which is you and your spouse, and then ultimately you, and then it's going to go to your next of kin if you have children or whoever your heirs are going to be. So you got to make sure it's in order. And I'll tell you, so many people, their their estate planning is just dreadful. It's either non-existent, they don't have a will, they don't have a power of attorney, uh, or they do, they don't know where it is, or they have a will, but that was 25 years ago, my husband was still alive, do I change my will now? You know, these are things that you need to, you know, get a handle on. Uh, as we now are entering a new year in a couple of weeks, it's a great time to, uh, I mentioned last week, uh, it's a great time as you hit the end of the year into the new year to evaluate your finances. Your portfolio, your risk tolerance, your your asset allocation, uh, but it's also a great time to review your estate plan, and this is especially true if you're single. Like I said, I'm not too worried about estate planning when uh, you have a husband and wife. A lot of times, wills aren't even probated when a spouse dies. I have a house; it's in both our names. Uh, I'm the survivor in the house; it's mine. I um, have a joint bank account or a joint investment account. My wife or my husband's the survivor. It's theirs when I die. Hasn't, the will has no effect on these things. I have an IRA account, a 401k, a pension. Well, my spouse is the beneficiary of that. So there's real no transfers going on here. It's just a survivor has it all. Then that doesn't mean in your will, if you're married, you can't say, you know, when I die, 10,000 goes to each of my three children and the balance goes to my spouse. You could do that. But usually what happens is that until the last spouse dies, no money goes to heirs. And let's assume that that's the way it's going to be. Now, if you are not going to split your estate evenly with your children, this is where the problems happen. And this is where communication is so important. Uh, because you're going to have you're going to have hurt feelings, you're going to have estranged uh, children um, if you don't deal with this properly. And it's generally not a good idea to split an estate unevenly. It really isn't. All right. But let's say that you have uh, a child who is well off. He's a doctor. He makes good money. Right? Then you have your other child who uh, uh, struggles, has four kids, uh, has a big mortgage, has debt, you know, uh, uh, and you want to give them more. That's fine. I have no problem with that. That makes a lot of sense to me, actually. But how you handle it is very important. Don't have your one child who's not getting the the lion's share of it's getting the, the the minority share of it. Don't let them find out when your will is read. Don't let them find out after you die. If you're going to have an uneven inheritance, you must discuss this. You must discuss this with them because you're gonna you're gonna have bad feelings. It reminds me of uh, if you're old enough to remember this. Uh, you remember the comedian Tommy Smothers? He always had a running gag with his brother Dick Smothers. He always said, Mom always liked you best. 
Now, again, you have to be an older person to remember that, but you just always say that. Well, it's the same thing. You don't want to, you don't want your children to feel that one was less loved than the other because of something that's in your will. Right? And again, there's reasons why sometimes people are handled differently. Like say you have say you have a business um, and you have a I don't know let's say uh uh electrician business and your son works for you. And that business is worth half a million dollars. Well, when you die, you may want to give that business to your son because he's the electrician. He's going to take it over. But what about your other children? Are they going to get 50000 each? How is that fair? Now, I understand why you're doing it, but financially, you're worth, let's say you're worth 600000 500000 is the business that goes to your son, and the other children split the hundred. It, 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 it's going to cause problems. So what could you do in that situation? Uh, you could buy a life insurance policy and name your two children that aren't going to get the business. Let them get 250000 each from a life insurance policy and let your son, who's the electrician, inherit the $500,000 business. See, there's, there's solution to these problems, all right? But they have to be discussed, and sometimes you need professional advice on them. But most importantly, you have to communicate that to your children. And I say organize a family meeting, either in person or you could do it on Zoom or FaceTime if, you know, you know, you're not all local and have this discussion. And now, depending on the family dynamics and every family's differently, uh, is different. And I deal with all of them. Their families are crazy. Uh, sometimes employing an estate lawyer uh, or a financial planner. To have this discussion with you and them makes a lot of sense because otherwise it can break down very quickly into you, you know, going back and forth with your kids, your kids going back and forth with each other. Uh, When you have a financial professional there, uh, it sometimes could smooth that out a little bit, Uh, a third party, if you will, um, to try to, uh, uh, to walk everybody through it. Now, also, that third party, you know, could be the one that suggest alternatives to make it more fair. I just mentioned, get a life insurance policy uh, and, and name your two children that don't aren't going to inherit that business, that they're going to get that money when you die. See, things do lots of different things you can do to make it fair for everybody. And uh, now sometimes, um, like I said, you have a struggling child, you want them to get more. Look, if I, you know, if I was a successful business person, uh, and my uh, my sister uh, and her husband struggle. They work hard. They try to get by. But, you know, like many families in America these days, they're, they're paycheck to paycheck. They have a lot of debt. Uh, well, then maybe uh, you want to uh, give more to one than the other. That's fine. And you know what? The more wealthy sibling will probably be okay with it as long as they know about it in advance. And they hear it from you. They don't hear it from a will that's being read to them by uh, the executor. And they may turn out to be the executor. They're the first person who gets the will, and they read it and say, wait a second. I'm getting 20%, and my sister's getting 80 Now, many times, the reason why is not explained in the will. It's just the way it is. And that's why it's important to have that family meeting and discuss it. Now, again, this you don't have to have the family meeting now, for many people, this is very uncomfortable. I understand that. 
for many uh, older uh, uh, families, uh, they're very uncomfortable speaking finances with their children. So I, you know, and I sit down with a new client. They're relatively wealthy. Uh, they're, you know, pretty old. Uh, maybe one single at that point. And I'll say to them, "Do your children know your financial situation?" Recently, I had a client come in with over two million dollars, and I said, do you, "You know, does your children know? You know, let me see your will." They said, "No, no, they don't know how much we have. They're going to be very surprised." Well, why don't you tell them now? Uh, why? Why is it such a secret? Some people just think, especially older people, they were brought up that you don't discuss certain things. Uh, but I think nowadays, more and more, uh, people do discuss this because it, now you have to do a lot of planning to do it right. So uh, again, the will is a terrible place to keep secrets. Uh, talking it out uh, will minimize hurt feelings. I'm telling you, uh, uh, you could explain yourself. Uh, you can't really explain yourself when you're um, six feet under. Uh, also, what we see a lot uh, is um, the little things in your in your life that they fight over. Uh, and this is where many, most people make the mistake, is that they don't list somewhere small items. Your wedding ring, dad's golf clubs. Dad's coin collection, the 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 portrait uh, or the the painting that's been over the fireplace for forty years. This is what families fight over, right? So, make a list of different items that you want certain children to have, and write the reason why. That way, it is less funny. See, mom wanted me to have her wedding ring, right? She stated right here, and here's the reason why. If there is none of that out there, you're gonna fight over these things. And the most important thing in life is when you die, that you don't want to leave behind a family disaster. And that's why it's really, really important to make sure that your estate planning is done. Again, most important when you're single. Absolutely most important when you're single. Uh, Something that could start being talked about when you're still married. But really, once you're single, uh, when you're single, you pass. That's when everything clicks in. That's when the will takes over. Now, what a lot of people will do is um, they'll put a lot of their accounts and transfer on death. What does that do? Transfer on death transfers that account uh, directly to whoever you name as transfer on death. Now, you can you can name multiple people, multiple children. So, what we do for some of our clients that you know want more of a hassle-free probate is what they do is they'll put as many accounts as they can transfer on death. Because it doesn't matter what the will says. If it's a transfer on death account, then it will transfer around the will to that individual. Now, that's not the same as putting somebody's name on an account. When you put somebody's name on an account, it's half their money, and they're going to be the survivor on the account. And that's one way to achieve the same thing. I mean, if that one account you know is going to go to one child, well, then you can put their name on it. All right, but a lot of people rather keep it in their name, it's their asset, and then put transfer on death on it. And that money will transfer on death. If you have IRA accounts or annuities, beneficiaries will take care of that. So I have clients who die that the will has zero effect. The only thing the will would have an effect on is your car 
or something like that, where there's no survivor on it, where there's no payable on death or transfer on death. Um, or those tchotchkes and those individual items would be part of your residual estate. And that's where you want to make that list of who gets what. Now, I've offered on this program for 20 years now. I, I've made a template called the State um, uh, Letter of Instruction. And this document is invaluable to your survivors. And what it does is it says where all your important information is. How many accounts do you have? What stocks do you own? Where are they? Do you owe any money? Do you have any debts? Where is your safe deposit box? Where is your will being kept? Um, Information about your cars. Does anybody owe you money? Uh, And there's at the the back of that, there's a lot of stuff there. It's like 20 pages long. Uh, But at the back of that is a list of personal property designation. And on the personal property designation is where you determine who gets. Now, it's not a legal document. It really is not. It's not a will. It's not part of your will. It's an addition to the will. It's an informational thing. But if dad says, I want my golf clubs to go to John because I played golf with John a lot and he always said he he loved them, uh, then that would be there. And John would get them because dad said so. When you have a a wedding ring, like I mentioned earlier, well, you have two daughters. Well, I want to give this to my youngest daughter because uh, she doesn't have any rings and she's she's always said how beautiful it was. And I I feel that uh, I'd like to give that ring to her. And meanwhile, my other daughter, I'm going to give something else. And that's called the estate letter of instruction. And it's free of charge. If anybody wants one, just email me or call my office. My email is lou at thefinancialphysician.com. Call me and say, we would like one of those uh, state letters of instruction. And we'll be more than happy to send you one. Uh, cost you nothing. Uh, and uh, But the most important thing is you got to fill it out. If you don't fill it out, it's worthless. Uh, so uh, fill it out. Uh, if nobody knows where it is, it's worthless. All right, so fill it out. Tell a loved one, uh, look, if something happens to me in the top drawer of my bedroom dresser is this document. Uh, it tells you where everything is, tells you every account I have. You know how many people, when someone dies, they have to do a forensic accounting to figure out where all the money is? Now, say you have a stock uh, that's being held at computer share, uh, a dividend reinvestment stock. You know what a nightmare it is for your children to know that that exists? They have to do all kinds of digging to find out about it. They're looking at tax returns to see where dividends are coming from and so forth and so on. It could be all listed on one document uh, that shows that, look, I own this mutual fund. I have this account here. I have this annuity here. Uh, How about life insurance? Do you have any life insurance? Yes, I do have life insurance. Here's where the policy is. It's with this company. I find that sometimes the estate letter of instruction is more more valuable than the will itself. And more and more, I think I was one of the first to put one of these together about 25 years ago. Uh, But now you're seeing more and more uh, estate attorneys that that are are putting together uh, an estate package. The the package will include um, the will, the power of attorney, living will, which is very important. Obviously, what you want done uh, if you go into a hospital. Uh, and then the less, the estate letter of instruction or something similar to it. 
uh, many of, um, like I said, the state attorneys now uh, suggest that you do that. So again, the will, terrible place to keep secrets, especially if you do not have equitable distribution of your assets. That's when a family conference really needs to be made. And it needs to be made when there's only one of you left. Uh, you're still married. Uh, this is uh, more um, less consequential uh, than when you're single. Right, we're going to take a break, and the rest of the show is pre-recorded. We'll be back live for you next week for our normal live edition of The Financial Physician. Don't go away. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer, a family-owned and operated premier septic installation and repair company with more than a decade of experience in the septic services. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer provides full-service maintenance and cleaning services, pumping septic tanks, repairing broken sewer lines, cleaning of grease tanks for restaurants, as well as real estate septic inspections, repairs, and installations. Phone 732-600-8721 or go to jerseyshoreseptic.com to learn more. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer, top quality work at the most affordable rates. Although customers were already going online more and more over the past five years, the amount of people doing business online has skyrocketed since the pandemic hit. Visit mylocalcustomers.com. Hi, Sean Michaels to tell you if you're a business owner here at the Jersey Shore, Town Square can help you find local customers online. Town Square can help you grow your business faster. Premium website services, new leads every day, no contracts, subscriptions you can cancel anytime. Visit mylocalcustomers.com. That's mylocalcustomers.com. For details. Do you have a home to sell? Do you need to buy a home? Or maybe you would like to consider a career in real estate? Well, you need to contact my brother, Mark Skatigna. He's the broker manager of Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty on Route 70 in Manchester. Mark has helped so many of my clients with either the sale of their home or to purchase a new home. All of them could not have been happier with his help. What about an exciting new career in real estate? Maybe you're finding you have more time on your hands than you would like to after retiring from your full-time job and are also looking to make some extra income. With flexible hours to still enjoy your free time and income, that could be limitless. Mark could train you to be as successful as you would like to be and enjoy a rewarding career in real estate. For help with any of your real estate needs, as well as any information on a career in real estate, call my brother Mark Skatigna at Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty. His number is 732-657-6200. That's 732-657-6200. Mark Skatigna, Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty. Give him a call. You'll be happy you did. I'm Lou Skatigna, certified financial planner, author, president of AFM Investments, and the host of The Financial Physician, heard each Sunday morning, 7 to 9, right here on 92.7 WOBM, or anytime at thefinancialphysician.com. Don't let interest rates, inflation, and market volatility keep you awake at night. Come to my Tom's River office for a no-obligation, professional diagnosis of your financial health. I'll review your investments, income taxes, and retirement plan. I'll suggest a comprehensive financial and estate plan that will improve your financial health, and most importantly, lower your financial risk during these uncertain times. If you are retired or plan to retire, I will show you strategies designed to increase your income and protect your estate from nursing home costs. Call us at 732-905-8100 and get on the road to a healthy financial future. That's 732-905-8100. Join me Sunday morning, 7 to 9, for The Financial Physician right here on 92.7 WOBM or listen to the podcast at thefinancialphysician.com. Securities transactions through Lee Baldwin and Company, member of FINRA and SIPC, Registered Investment Advisory Service to afford Advisory Group. Here's Luz Katigna. All right, welcome back. If you missed any of the show, just go to thefinancialphysician.com where we have the podcast of this program. Paul will have it up right after the show is over. Today's a very special pre-recorded show, the best of the financial physician in 2022. We have great topics ahead of you. But it's going to be interesting to see because a lot of significant technical levels are breaking down in the markets. What does that mean? 
Well, there's something called fundamental analysis and something called technical analysis. What's the difference, you ask? Well, fundamental analysis is if I'm thinking about buying, let's say, IBM stock, I want to know what the earnings per share is. I want to know what the revenue of the company is. I want to know, did they pay a dividend? How's management? What's the economy doing? What's the stock market doing? And then I can make a fundamental decision on whether or not it's a good idea to invest in IBM. And you could say this about every market. It doesn't matter if it's gold, oil, an individual stock, a bond, whatever. It, it, that, that, that's what you do. You look at the fundamentals of that market and you decide whether or not it's a good idea to invest in it or not. Technical analysis, on the other hand, has doesn't care about any of that. Technicals are based on what is the price doing of that market. Again, whether it's a stock, whether it's a, a commodity, or the stock market in general, it doesn't really matter. You look at a chart of the price, and that tells you everything. <clears throat> it's not what you think it should be doing or what you think it may do. It's what is it really doing? What are people doing with their money? And when certain levels are hit and it goes through those levels, that's really bad. And I, I'm a big believer in technical analysis. I, I'm an active trader. I buy and sell all the time in my account. I don't do anything without looking at the charts. What are the charts telling me? And the good thing about technical analysis is there's no emotion involved and there's no prediction involved. When you're doing fundamental analysis, you're doing some kind of prediction. But in technical analysis, you're reacting to what the markets are doing. And technical analysis is very powerful. And I know sometimes I think I'm smarter than my technicals. I look at the technicals and it tells me I should be selling and I say, you know what? I disagree with the technicals. I think they're wrong. Well, every time I think the technicals are wrong, I'm wrong. And every New Year's, my resolution is, Lou, look at your effing chart and don't disagree with them because they're usually right. And that's because there's no prediction involved. What are people actually doing with their money? They're selling. And there's moving averages, there's trend lines, there's so many different technical indicators that tell you a lot. Well, right now, the stock market is breaking very important technical areas, uptrend lines and moving averages and all this other stuff, which historically means you have big downside ahead. And the technical indicators right now are screaming sell. And uh, I think, uh, and people see this. I mean, you know, market participants, I mean, hedge funds and big investment banks, they have computer programs that look at all these technical indicators and they automatically sell when they see certain things broken. That's why when you see a, a, an uptrend line broken, you'll see follow through because computers are kicking in all over the world saying, uh-oh, we got a bear market sell signal here. Let's automatically sell millions and millions of dollars worth of that security or that market. Anyway, let, let's start off talking about 
the need for financial advice. You know, it comes a time in our lives uh, where uh, something's changed. Maybe we're approaching retirement. Maybe we're going. We are retired. Maybe we want to do some end of life planning. Maybe we want to do some estate planning. Uh, where we need a financial advisor. It's almost impossible for the average person to properly manage their money. Uh, like anything else, I mean, you don't manage your own health care. You don't, you know, you don't go into court without a lawyer. And uh, too many people manage their own money, and they're ver- they're unqualified to do so. Uh, you know, I get a kick. I see some people with a lot of money, and the way they're managing it on their own without professional advice is a disaster. They have no idea what they're doing. Uh, and uh, But there comes a time in our lives when we really do need professional advice. So how do you determine the proper advisor for you? This is, this is a very, very difficult thing for people. And it's difficult because there's a big blur out there between different types of advisors. Anybody can call themselves a financial advisor. But are they an insurance agent? Do they, do they exclusively use insurance products? Are they a stockbroker? What are they? You know, what are they primarily? Very few people in the financial services industry are a pure financial advisor. Now, if you're looking for the cream of the crop, somebody who could actually call themselves a financial advisor, you're looking at a certified financial planner. You can't get higher than that in financial services. That person has a significant amount of experience in all aspects of money management, not just investments. Has to degrade at taxes, corporate benefits, estate planning, end of life planning, which we're gonna touch on in the hour. Corporate benefits, financing a house, anything that's money related, a good certified financial planner can advise you on it. But if your financial advisor is an insurance agent and the answer to every issue is an annuity or life insurance product, that person is not there to advise you on estate planning or taxes or anything else. And you got to understand the difference between financial salesmen and women and financial advisors. So it's very, very tough you know, for a person to go out there and find somebody that's, uh, that's competent. And you want to know, what does this person offer me as far as the complete package of having a financial advisor? And you got to watch out for titles. You know, you know, people are impressed by titles. There's a hundred different financial advisor designations out there now. Some of them are strong. Other ones are very weak. And it's, they're, they're a two or three hour class just to, so somebody can put letters after their name. So again, what's the different types of advisors? I'm going to go over it with you. Now, there's a need for each one of these, all right? And it depends what your needs are, which one is right for you. All right, we said before, a certified financial planner, also known as a CFP. They call them a CFP professional now. This is the most prestigious financial advisor designation. There's nothing higher than that. So how do you become a financial uh, certified financial planner? Three years experience in financial services industry, a bachelor's degree from college, or you don't have to have a bachelor's degree, but you have to have five years of financial planning experience. 
You you have to pass a two-day exam that covers financial planning, taxes, insurance, estate planning, retirement planning. I've it's been a long time since I took that test, but boy, that was a grueling test. To keep your designation, you have to maintain high ethical conduct. It's very easy to lose that designation. Every two years, you have to complete 30 hours of continuing education. Now, uh, my two-year period is up next week, so I'm renewing my CFP certification. Uh, Over the last month, I've been doing all my continuing education. Now, I've been a certified financial planner for 35 years. I've been in financial services. Next year, it's going to be 40 years, and I still have to take continuing education. It's pretty funny because I, I take these classes and I don't even really study the the paper, the, the book. I just take the test because I know the answers. I could teach these courses. How annuities work, how mutual funds. I know the answers to this stuff. Oh, God. So, but, um, so uh, a CFP, if you're looking for a comprehensive planner, not somebody just to invest 50 grand for you. But you're looking for somebody that's going to be your right-hand person with your taxes, with your estate planning, with your end-of-life planning, with your income for retirement, uh, to deal with your 401k rollover when you retire. You're looking for a certified financial planner. And we're going to talk about how everybody gets compensated. But for the most part, dealing with a certified financial planner uh, is no more expensive than dealing with any other financial professional who is not as educated or as competent. Let's talk about a registered representative. What is that? That, that that's They're also known as stockbrokers or account executives. But they often refer to themselves as financial advisors. But what they really are are security salespeople. Now, in addition to being a certified financial planner, I'm a registered representative. I've been a licensed stockbroker for 39 years. Part of financial planning is having the ability to transact securities transactions for your clients. So you'll find that that, that, that that most certified financial planners are stockbrokers. And how do you become a stockbroker uh, or a registered representative? You pass a test. That's all it takes. Most people think, well, this person is a stockbroker. They must be really smart. They must know everything about money. No, it doesn't mean that at all. I passed my registered representative test when I was 23. And that gave me, I took a series, what's called a Series 6 test, which allowed me to sell mutual funds. Did that make me a financial advisor? Absolutely not. I knew nothing. I knew how to sell you a mutual fund, or at least I thought I did. I worked for a company called First Investors. All I did was sell First Investors products. I wasn't a financial advisor. I thought I was. I worked in New York City. I thought I was all it. I remember getting out of the Port Authority, walking down 7th Avenue. My office was to Penn Plaza, which is the building right in front of Madison Square Garden. As a matter of fact, I was in New York City uh, Thursday night and drove by there, and I looked up, and I said, that's where it all started. 
But I felt like I was all in with my, my cheap suit and my briefcase, walking down 7th Avenue, going to my office. I certainly was not a financial advisor. I certainly wasn't a financial planner. Then you have registered investment advisor. Okay, this is usually an individual or a firm uh, that works on fees and manages money. We're going to talk the difference between managed money and just somebody selling you some investments. And some RAs are also registered representatives or brokers. I am both. I'm a registered investment advisor um, representative, and I'm also a registered representative for a brokerage. So registered investment advisors, for the most part, charge fees versus commissions, but they could do both. Then you have insurance agents. So insurance agents, they get licensed by the state, they take a test for insurance, and they sell life, health, property, you know, insurance, variable annuities, fixed annuities. The problem with insurance agents is that's what they do, insurance-related products. That does not make them well-rounded financial advisors. The answer to all your issues are going to be a life insurance policy or an annuity. And I know many people in the business who are insurance agent, and that's all they do. That's the answer to everything. Then you have chartered life underwriter. What is that? That's the most prestigious designation in the insurance industry. They're a little bit more rounded in financial planning and so forth, but they're still insurance people. Then you have your accountant. You know, accountant, what do they do? They're tax people. They'll do your tax return. They'll advise you on tax issues. Most accountants are very good at what they do, but I wouldn't consider my accountant my financial advisor. Now, in my case, I'm kind of rare in the business. In addition to being a certified financial planner, a registered representative, a registered investment advisor, I'm also a tax accountant. I'm not a CPA, I'm a CFP, but I've been preparing taxes for 35 years for my clients. For most of my clients, not only am I their financial planner, their investment advisor, their estate planner, I'm also their accountant. And I'm surprised more people don't do both. I mean, I, I, I find that taxes go hand in hand with almost everything we do financially. Everything has a tax consequence, right? And the advantage of dealing with uh, your financial advisor also being your accountant because the right hand always knows what the left hand's doing. Clients of mine who I'm not their accountant, I'm surprised sometimes when they come and see me to do their taxes. Why'd you do that? Oh, I don't know. Well, the thing is, if your accountant is also your financial planner, he'll make sure that you don't do stupid things because he sees everything that's going on in your financial life. Then you got some, like I said before, there's hundreds of designations out there. You got, here's a very weak one. Uh, let's see. Uh, weak, uh, certified senior advisor. 
All right. Seniors, we, you know, big portion of our society now as baby boomers retire. Uh, you can go get take a course. I think it's uh, three hours. Uh, and uh, you can become a certified senior advisor, a CSA. Then you have certified senior consultant. Same thing. Then you have certified fund specialists. What does that mean? Uh, this person took a self-study course, passed three short exams, and now they are um, supposedly an expert at mutual funds. So what do you do? Find out what you need in a financial advisor. If you just need a life insurance policy, deal with deal with an insurance agent. Right? You just want to buy some mutual funds, you could deal with a broker or some stocks. Are you looking for a comprehensive plan where you're retiring and everything's being considered, your taxes, your Social Security, your income, how do I get income, how do I protect what I have, how do I pass on my, my wealth to my, my kids, how do I protect my inheritance from the cost of long-term care? These are all the things that a, a certified financial planner will do for you. Now, let's talk about the two different ways money is taken care of or how you invest money. The first one is you go see a broker or, or again, a financial advisor, quote, unquote. And just realize that 80% of people call themselves financial advisors are financial salespeople and can't advise you on taxes or estate planning or how Medicaid works for nursing homes. That's not what they do. So just always be aware that, you know, does this person selling me something? Are they working for me? Are they working for themselves? So, you know, and I've done both, but but you have financial, quote-unquote, advisors who work on commission. The first half of my career, I was that person. I worked on commission because that's what most people did at that time. I made commissions mainly for selling mutual funds or annuities. The problem with a commission-based advisor is you go see a commission-based advisor, and I use that term advisor loosely. I, you know, that's not an advisor. It's someone selling you something, making a commission and moving on. And that's the thing with commission-based people is that they don't make anything after the sale. So you're kind of dead to them, and you wind up with what's called a, a static portfolio. It's, 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 you know, whatever investment you have, you continue to have. Not, no changes are made. You almost never get a call from that person saying that, look, I don't like the way the market's looking. Let's take an adjustment and make, make let's lower the risk. Let's rebalance the portfolio. You're not going to get those calls for the most part. Why? Because there's no financial interest for that person. They're off looking for the next new client because they got to pay their bills next month. They don't care about you. And that's how people lose a lot of money when markets turn south because, you know, there's nobody watching it. There's nobody making adjustments. It's not until you call the broker and say, hey, John, you know, I'm getting killed here. You know, what do I do? And you say, well, you know, uh, Mr. Client, uh, we can move you into more conservative things. We say, well, why didn't you call me ahead of time and do that? Now, Now the damage is done. 
So you've got to be very, very careful. Also, you have to worry about conflicts of interest. Is this commission-based person selling me something because they're selling me an annuity because they're making an 8% commission when I'd be better off with a mutual fund, but they'd only make 2 or 3%. So anytime there's commissions involved, your radar always has to go up. And you have to determine, is this you know right for me or right for that? And a lot of times on commission-based products, you're, you're locked up. You, know, you take the money out over time. You get penalties and so forth. So you've got to be care- careful with that as well. So what's the other way to do it? Well, the other way to do it is through fee-based planning or money management. And that's the way I think everybody should look at. I You should want a fee-based planner. Why? Number one, because they're getting paid every year. They're getting a management fee every single year to manage your money. They have a vested interest in your success. Number two, there's no conflict of interest. They're not going to sell you something. They're not making commissions, so it doesn't matter what you own. They're not going to push you in an annuity because they're getting compensated four times a mutual fund. If a fee-based advisor is making, you know, one and a half percent a year managing your money, there is no incentive to push you into something that's not right for you. Also, in fee-based money management, your money's managed it's not static, and, and usually you're paying somebody to look at the markets, to look at your accounts, and make sure if things aren't right, they make adjustments. I don't sell investments for the most part. I manage money. There's a big difference. In money management clients, you know, we watch their money all the time, and we're always making adjustments to the portfolio. I mean, we've had a really bad start of the year. It's been historically bad for stocks and bonds. You know, for our conservative clients, in in February, you know, this spring, we moved them to cash. Our clients today, as we speak, are 100% in U.S. Treasury money market accounts for now. Because we feel that's the best place for them to be in this uncertain time. We'll move them back into their investments at the right time. That's money management. And you pay fees for that. You hear the term uh, used a lot. It's called fiduciary. What's a fiduciary? A fiduciary is a person or an organization or a company that acts on um, behalf of somebody else. A fiduciary has to put their client's interest ahead of their own. That would make sense, does don't you think, that anything financially, any advisor you have should put your, uh, your, your well-being ahead of their own? You would think that would be normal. It's not. Now, the brokerage industry now has really put regulations in to make almost everybody a fiduciary. And to be a fiduciary, I mean, the responsibilities are both ethical and legal a fiduciary is expected to work on behalf of their clients in the best interest of their clients and uh, registered investment advisors are fiduciaries certified financial planners are fiduciaries 
So it's good. Always ask a p- potential, again, quote-unquote advisor, are, they, are you a fiduciary to me? And, and that, 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 that tightens things up a lot. They can't just put you in an annuity where they get an 8% commission if they're a fiduciary. They have to make sure that that is in your best interest compared to all their alternatives. So uh, what do you do? I mean, you can't just abdicate responsibility for your money to somebody else. You don't want to do that. You want to be involved. I've had I've had too many people come to me and say, Lou, I don't know anything about money. Here, just take my nest egg and you do what you think is the right thing to do. And I don't like that. I, I, I'd rather, no, no, I want you to be involved. Let's talk about how these things work. It's not that complicated. Let's talk about the investments and why we're doing it this way. So don't abdicate. And this happens a lot with... Uh, Typically, older widow women, they know they don't know about money because they were never involved in it. The husband took care of everything, and now they'll abdicate to this nice young man, you know, that uh, your friend uses that works for an insurance company. Interview a number of financial advisors. Find out which one you feel most comfortable with. Find out what kind of services they offer you. What can you do for me? If I want to go buy a new car, are you able to tell me the best ways to finance it? Are you able to uh, advise me on tax matters? Are you able to review my insurance policies to make sure that I'm paying the right amount and I have the right amount of insurance? Are you uh, capable, if if, if I start to become, uh, uh, my health declines, mentally or physically, that uh, you could advise me on end-of-life planning? What do you need in a financial advisor? Another thing, too, experience means everything. You know, in the financial services industry, turnover is huge. Most people who enter the financial services industry don't last very long. It's tough to get started. I, I I struggled in the beginning. I almost left the business three times when I was young. You don't get a salary for the most part. You work on commission. I can't tell you how many times uh, it was the end of the month, and I hadn't done, done enough business to, to pay my bills the next month. And I, a number of times, was looking for a salary job. You know, and had a young family. Thankfully, I got through it and, and built my business from there. But it's it's a struggle in the beginning. So you want somebody with experience. It doesn't cost you any more money to deal with somebody that's been in the business 10, 20, 30, 40 years. There's no premium for longevity and experience. You know, like, um, you know, a good good law firm, right? You want to get a really good lawyer, cost you an arm and a leg, right? You know, you're going to pay for their experience. That's not true with financial planners. So maybe you want a planner with a little bit of gray in his hair, or in my case, little hair. 
The bottom line is a good financial advisor is as essential to your financial health as a good physician is to your physical health. To use a financial physician analogy. So if you're looking for an advisor, hire a well-rounded, experienced advisor, preferably a certified financial planner who has good knowledge of estate planning, taxation, insurance, and other areas of financial management. But most importantly, in your gut, you know if that person is BSing you, is selling you, has your best interest at heart, is competent. So you want to feel an overall trust and a good comfort level with whatever advisor you select. You want an advisor who you have easy access to, that returns your calls. People come to me, new clients that have advisors elsewhere, and they say, oh, I call this guy, you know, he doesn't call me back, or, you know, it takes a couple of days for him to get back to me. That's unacceptable. A financial advisor should get back to you, uh, if not that same day, within 24 hours. You want to have an advisor that communicates well with you, that you feel comfortable that you could talk to. And you got to realize a good financial advisor is going to be a very important part of your life. They should care about your family, your future. One of the things we're doing now, you know, because of my um, longevity in the business, uh, my firm, AFM Investments, founded with my partner, Martin Salzman, 35 years ago. Uh, so a lot of our clients have been with us for decades. You know, they retired at 65. Now they're 85, 90. And now we're meeting with their children, discussing generational wealth transfer, long-term care planning. We're doing all that stuff now. I never had it. I rarely had to do it when I was younger in my career because my, my clients were young. But now that, you know, my clients have aged, you know, I've been thrust into this over the years. And we're doing a lot of gifting strategies, estate planning, end-of-life planning, long-term care planning. End-of-life, I mean, that's where people make a lot of mistakes. A lot of wealth can be burned up without the right planning. Well, you're not going to go to an insurance agent and get that kind of uh, advice. So be careful in in, uh, choosing a financial advisor. You know, ask them how they work, how are they compensated, are they a fiduciary, do they work on commissions, do they work on fees, Uh, what kind of access will I have to you, do you have clients that are similar to me, my specialty has always been senior financial issues, my my clients are are mainly retired or pre-retired, that's where our expertise is. The senior financial issues, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, nursing home planning, income planning. How often will I see a statement? Can I meet with you anytime with no no cost? Will you, um, can I fire you? And if I do... 
what is the financial aspect? Am I going to have any penalties or commissions if I want to move my money away from you? Could I contact references from you? Now, that's that's kind of like an iffy thing. You know, if someone's going to give you references, they're going to give you the names of people that love them. You know, they're not going to give you the names of people who are going to say bad things about you. But it, but it helps to ask just basic questions. Are you comfortable with that person? You know, tell me about them. Are you glad you made that decision to go with them? Any problems that have you encountered with that person? Oh, and lastly, definitely look up the disciplinary history of anybody you're doing business with. There are resources that you can go to to look at the exact history of any financial advisor. Broker check is one. And again, most financial people are registered representatives. They're licensed to sell securities, whether they're mutual funds, variable annuities, or or stocks and bonds. Uh, You could just go on broker check, put in their name, and you could find everything about them. Do they have a disciplinary history? Have they had client complaints? Have they had settlements? Is there any criminal history? All that stuff's available to the public if you check it. Very important to do that. So again, finding a financial advisor, not everybody needs one. You got $50,000 to your name and you know, you're just looking to put money in an IRA. You don't need a financial advisor. You don't need a certified financial planner. Chances are they're not going to take you because you're too small. But if you do need comprehensive financial planning, you're approaching retirement, you're going into retirement now, you have a big 401k or you have pension options you have to discuss, that's the time to seek out a good certified financial planner. All right, top of the hour. My name is Lou Skatignan. Uncle Way. time for Americans to grow up and become financially responsible. Let's talk about something important. If you're in it for the money, that's not a bad thing. Do you realize how much money he just saved us? This is The Financial Physician with Lou Scatigna. The Financial Physician. It's the fastest hour in Money Talk Radio. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hardworking people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates. This is financial advice you can take to the bank. He's your money man. Show me Your source for straightforward, no-nonsense financial advice. Bring me your money questions, because I'm here to help. And now, here he is, the financial physician, America's money doctor, Lou Scatigna. All right, welcome back. If you missed any of the show, just go to thefinancialphysician.com, where we have the podcast of this program. Paul will have it up right after the show is over. Today's a very special pre-recorded show, the best of the financial physician in 2022. We have great topics ahead of you uh, today. This is the best topics, financial topics we talked about over the course of the year. Uh, Paul, I got a question for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quiz you to start the program. What do we buy that we spend maybe 15% of our income on and we hope we never get to use it? Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, and well, the first thing is uh, insurance. Insurance, good one. I kudos to you for pulling that up. That's right. We spend ten to fifteen percent of our budget on different types of insurance, and every kind of insurance is something we don't want to use. 
Imagine how we spend money on things for something we hope we don't use. Uh, and that's what insurance is. But, in, you know, insurance um, does cost us a lot of money. And it's one of the, the largest items in our budget. Costs for insurance continue to spiral up, especially when we talk about health insurance. We'll talk about that uh, in a minute. But in the United States, most families spend between 10, 15, 20% of their annual income on insurance. I'm going to talk about how to save money on this. Now, I don't talk about insurance a lot. It's not a sexy subject, you know, but it's, but it's something we all have to deal with. And I'll try to sex it up a little bit, the insurance story here. Um, but we live in a litigious society uh, where we could be, in, you know, sued for anything. Uh, so some of the insurance we have is to prevent that. Uh, Health care, of course, is the big one. We're going to talk about that. Long-term care when we're older. Uh, auto insurance, homeowners insurance. There's so many different kinds of insurances out there. And many people don't understand insurance and either have the wrong insurance, the the more expensive insurance. They don't shop for insurance. And uh, we're going to tell you how to save a lot of money on insurance. Now, the purpose of insurance, and I think a lot of people don't understand the purpose of insurance. The purpose of insurance is to protect you from catastrophic loss, from losing everything you worked hard for your entire life which you could, say your home burns down, you don't have fire insurance. It could wipe you out. Same is true of health insurance or auto insurance. So we buy these insurances so we don't have to pay gigantic bills that we may not even be able to afford. So when we buy insurance, we transfer the risk of catastrophic losses to an insurance company who then assumes those risks for us. And we pay insurance companies premiums to protect us from those risks. Now, again, we hope we never need insurance. But we can't do without it. We have to have it. We need to insure our our cars. We need to insure our house. We need to insure our lives. We need to insure our income. In some cases, we need special insurance, like flood insurance. We live by the shore. Earthquake insurance. If we live in an earthquake-prone part of the country. If you have a business, you're a doctor or a lawyer, malpractice insurance. Errors and emission insurance and much, much more. There's all kinds of insurance. And uh, People don't seem to shop around for insurance, though. You know, when we have an insurance company, say you have your, your car insurance company, it's with Allstate, and every year it comes up for renewal. Most of us just allow it to renew. We don't spend 15 minutes uh, comparing prices with Geico. Uh, we just say, all right, you know, I have Allstate, so they're going to renew it. Yeah, it's a little higher. I'll just, you know, go with it. But really, if you shop around, you can save a lot of money. And those Geico commercials are not wrong. You know, you spend 15 minutes shopping for insurance, you're going to find all kinds of different amount of premiums. But you got to realize that insurance is not meant to pay every dollar of something that happens to you. If you wanted to, you can, but you're going to pay a lot of money in premiums for something that you're probably not going to use. 
Now think about it. How many how many years do you pay homeowners insurance? I'll use that as an example. Homeowners insurance has gotten really expensive. I think for my home it's like seventeen hundred a year. Right? Uh I think I've used homeowners insurance once in all the years I've been a homeowner. I had there's a hail storm that came through my neighborhood and we needed a new roof and some new gutters and everything and about and I think it was twenty five thousand dollars I was covered for with my insurance policy, but I can't remember any other time in the thirty years I was a homeowner. So think about all that money I spent for something I didn't need. Uh, I've had quite a bit of life insurance over the years. I'm still alive. That means I didn't get any return on my investment. <laughs> I don't want to have a return on my investment right now, but, you know, hey, uh, think about all the premiums I've paid. Uh, car insurance. Uh, thankfully, I haven't had any car accidents since I was a teenager. Uh, so I really haven't used my car insurance. Spent thousands of dollars on that over the years. So it's kind of really an interesting product, insurance. Something we buy costs us a lot of money in our budget, and we hope we never need it. So how do we save money on insurance? Well, we take some of the risk ourselves. What do I mean by that? Higher deductible amounts will lower your premium. The more risk you're willing to take, the lower the premium is going to be. So if you have a policy, say, in your car and you have a $1,000 deductible, the premium is going to be less than if you took a $250 deductible. And that's what you want to do. Yeah, nobody wants to pay $1,000 when you have a car problem, you know, you have a fender bender or something, but it's not going to wipe you out. But it's going to reduce the amount of your premiums. And the chances of you needing that insurance, as I've been saying, is probably pretty low in every given year. Higher co-payments are going to reduce your health insurance premiums. And if you want to have lower co-payments and deductibles, it's probably not cost effective. Unless you're very ill and use it a lot. Let's talk about life insurance. Very, very important thing to have. You have to have it, especially if you're young and you have kids and everything. Look, if, if you're, um, your kids are gone, it's just you and your wife, you have a lot of savings, your house is paid off, well, maybe you don't need insurance at all. Life insurance. The only reason you have life insurance is so your loved ones will get by if you were to die, if you're the sole source of income in the family. But if you're okay and, you know, your house is paid off and you got savings and investments and, you you, you know, you, you know your spouse is going to be okay, eh, maybe you don't need insurance. Let's talk about life insurance. There's two different types. There's term insurance. There's whole life insurance. What's the difference? Term insurance is pure insurance. For a specific amount of time, you have the same premium usually. It's called level term I'm a big fan of level term insurance. I've only owned level term insurance my whole life. Why? Because you get more bang for your buck. You get more insurance coverage. And you got to be careful because insurance agents always try to push whole life insurance, which combines the death benefit with a savings component. 
and you insure your entire life, no matter what happens to you, your health or whatever, as long as you pay the premiums, you still have the insurance. Now, term insurance, it only goes for a certain amount of time. And at the end of that time, if you're not insurable because you have health issues, well, then you're not going to get insurance. But I've always bought 20-year term, 20-year level term. Because I figured, you know, my kids are, are five. In 20 years, they're going to be 25 and gone. And it's just me and my wife. And then I'll, I'll get another insurance policy when that one expires, which I did. Because I was insurable. But you got to be careful, especially younger people. You know, you're going to have a friend who became an insurance agent. And he's going to come to your house. And he's going to show you how great the whole life insurance policy is. It's $200 a month for $100,000 in life insurance. But that's not enough insurance. If something happened to you, what's $100,000 going to do for your family if you have kids? But for a fraction of that amount of money, you can get a real large life insurance policy, say a half a million, for maybe 500 a year. Now, the younger you are, the cheaper it is. That's the way life insurance works, obviously. Your chances of dying at 25 are a lot lower than your chance of dying, you know, at 60. Unless you took the um, experimental jab, and then then your risk of a heart attack just went up. And by the way, life insurance statistics are showing excessive mortality. I mean, they're paying out lots of claims. I mean, it's it's just skyrocketing. And this is not a a statistical thing that happens. Funeral directors, you ask them how busy they are, they'll tell you. How many times now do you hear, died unexpectedly? Died unexpectedly. 27 years old, died unexpectedly. Soccer players dropping dead on a soccer pitch. We'll talk about that later on in the program. Hopefully these people have life insurance. (laughs) They're 27 years old with kids, right? Uh, So I I was an insurance agent um, for a number of years early in my career. Uh, I I let that expire. I'm not licensed anymore. Um, It's just not my thing, insurance. I'm an investment guy, a financial planner. Uh, I send people to other people for insurance. I don't like it. I don't like dealing with selling insurance. Um, but let me illustrate how important it is to have life insurance and an experience I had with a client. And I detail this in my book. By the way, in my book, The Financial Physician, How to Cure Your Money Problems, Boost Your Financial Health, got a whole chapter on insurances and how to save money. By the way, the book is free of charge. Just go to my website, thefinancialphysician.com. You could download it. Uh, you don't have to go buy it. It's available at Amazon. It's available in um, the Ocean County Library. I was in the Ocean County Library this week. It kind of gives me a kick to see my book in this bookshelf. As a matter of fact, I was there the other day, and it was already lent out. Somebody was reading it, so it's kind of kind of neat. I'll never forget when I wrote the book in 2010, and I went to my local Barnes & Noble And I saw the book in the bookcase for the first time in the finance section. It was quite a thrill. And then a week later, I did a book signing in the Howell Barnes & Noble. Uh, That was was neat, really neat. And anybody who ever wrote a book will tell you the day that the case comes where your book 
comes in and you open it up and you see the book. It's uh, it's very thrilling. It is. Maybe I have to write another book soon. It's not easy to try to write a book. The, uh, interesting story. When when I wanted to write the book, I, I got a, a book, uh, an agent. And I asked him, what's the chance of getting um, you know, a publishing contract? He said about 2%. So he we he we wrote up uh, uh, um, a preview of the book, and in two weeks I had a contract with Career Press. The only problem was it was April, and I was in middle of income tax season, and they said uh, we want this to be the lead financial book in the fall when we release our new books. So uh, could you have it done by July first? <laughs> it was April, uh, and I had it done by July first. As a matter of fact, I had twenty five chapters, and they cut out five because they said it was too long. Maybe I should put out a new book with the five chapters or <laughs> in the first book. Um, anyway, I illustrate in the book uh, an anecdote. Early in my career, I'll never forget it, uh, there was a young couple, and they had two small children. And their name was John and Mary. And John was struggling to make ends meet, and he could not afford to buy life insurance. A friend of his tried to sell him a $300,000 whole life policy that was $200 a month. $2,400 a year. He couldn't afford it. So he passed on it. And I asked him, let, let me review the proposal. So a few days later, I presented John with a proposal for a 20-year level term policy with a $500,000 death benefit. The premium was $500 a year. He could afford that. So he had a larger death benefit at only 20% of the cost of whole life. So he bought the policy. Six months later, his wife Mary called me and told me John died in an accident at work. And um, sad, very sad. And I, I'll never forget the feeling I had knowing that I was able to get John life insurance at low cost, and now Mary and her children would not be in financial danger. Now, I knew life insurance was important. I'm a certified financial planner. Um, but that day, I learned how crucial having proper insurance is. So insurance is a necessary thing, and uh, we have to have it. But you got to realize that the more insurance that you take on yourself, the more risk you take on yourself with higher deductibles, higher co-payments, and things like that, the less it's going to cost you. Now, when people are choosing this, specifically life insurance, you know, they, how much do I need? We got to ask, you know, some questions of yourself. How important is your income to your family? Can they live comfortably without your income or without life insurance proceeds? Does your spouse have a high-paying job that if you were to pass, they still have income? Do you have mortgages? Do you have debt? Do you have young children? Do you want to pay for their college with your life insurance? Do you want to pay off your mortgage? You know, a lot of people, that, that, that they get life insurance, they want to get enough to pay off their mortgage so if they die, their, their spouse and their kids have a free house. But there's more to it than that. You know, you got to replace income. You got to, you know, college funding. 
a young uh, a young couple with two kids should have at least five hundred thousand dollars in life insurance, and that may be too low, especially in the inflationary environment we live in. So other things you could do to lower costs, you know, take take car insurance. Well, maybe you could call your carrier that gives you homeowner's insurance. There's discounts if you bundle different policies together. How about maintaining a good driving record, obviously? You got three DUIs, your 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 car insurance is going to be pretty high. Uh, buy less expensive cars. Uh, drop collision coverage on um, on older cars. May not pay. At a certain point, older cars are not worth fixing. Take advantage of all the discounts that are available. Uh, good driving record, driver training courses you take will lower your uh, cost, anti-theft devices. Ask what discounts are offered, you know, from your insurance company. See if you qualify for them. Join an auto club like AAA. You may be eligible for uh, discounts. But the best way to lower your insurance is to increase your deductible. Now, health insurance would be a whole different subject, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because, A, it's aggravating. That's the most expensive insurance you're going to have. It's amazing how insurance now has eclipsed mortgage payments for many people. I have a group plan at my office. We have a small group. I pay $2,000 a month for my wife and I, 2000 a month with substantial deductibles, substantial co-pays, you know, you pay two thousand a month. You go into an emergency room; it costs you a thousand bucks. I go, wait a second, what am I paying premiums for? Uh, a big ins- type of insurance that people ask me about all the time is long-term care insurance, nursing home insurance. Should I get it? I don't know. You going to go into a nursing home, and how long are you going to stay there? Nobody can answer that question. Just like nobody can answer the question, "Am I going to die untimely death when I'm young?" Uh, we don't even never know the answers to that question. Just like we don't know the answer, is my house going to burn down? If I knew my house wasn't going to burn down, I wouldn't get homeowner's insurance this year. But we never know. And I'll, I'll, I'll do a separate segment one day on long-term care insurance, the pros and cons of doing it, you know, and what it costs and whatnot. So in summary, insurance, whether it's life insurance, car insurance, health insurance, long-term care insurance, or any kind of insurance, uh, is necessary. Because without it, you could lose everything, a good portion of your net worth. Maybe put you deeply in debt. But you got to have the proper insurance. You have to have the proper deductibles to keep that cost down. You got to behave in a manner that lowers the risk. And it's really, really smart to have a really good insurance agent. And uh, 
really good insurance agent. Now, there's a couple different kinds of insurance agents out there. You got to be, be be sure you understand. There's a captive agent. A captive agent works for an insurance company. So every type of insurance product is going to come from that insurance company. So say you have an Allstate agent. Well, your homeowner is going to be Allstate Insurance. Your car insurance is going to be Allstate. If you're dealing with an independent agent, they represent all the companies. They could give you the best insurance that you need for that specific situation. And uh, I think it's very, very important to have an independent insurance agent, whether it's health insurance, whether it's car insurance, whatever. Uh, An independent agent works for you and doesn't work for the company. And that, that's really, really important, especially when you're looking to save money because a good insurance agent is very valuable and uh, will find the best insurance based on your needs at the right cost. All right, time for a break. 732-237-9626 is our call number. My name's Lou Skatigner, and you're listening to The Financial Physician. Don't go away. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer, a family-owned and operated premier septic installation and repair company with more than a decade of experience in the septic services. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer provides full-service maintenance and cleaning services, pumping septic tanks, repairing broken sewer lines, cleaning of grease tanks for restaurants, as well as real estate septic inspections, repairs, and installations. Phone 732-600-8721 or go to jerseyshoreseptic.com to learn more. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer, top quality work at the most affordable rates. Although customers were already going online more and more over the past five years, the amount of people doing business online has skyrocketed since the pandemic hit. Visit mylocalcustomers.com. Hi, Sean Michaels to tell you if you're a business owner here at the Jersey Shore, Town Square can help you find local customers online. Town Square can help you grow your business faster. Premium website services, new leads every day, no contracts, subscriptions you can cancel anytime. Visit mylocalcustomers.com. That's mylocalcustomers.com. Customers.com for details. Do you have a home to sell? Do you need to buy a home? Or maybe you would like to consider a career in real estate? Well, you need to contact my brother, Mark Skatigna. He's the broker manager of Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty on Route 70 in Manchester. Mark has helped so many of my clients with either the sale of their home or to purchase a new home. All of them could not have been happier with his help. What about an exciting new career in real estate? Maybe you're finding you have more time on your hands than you would like to after retiring from your full-time job and are also looking to make some extra income. With flexible hours to still enjoy your free time and income that could be limitless. Mark could train you to be as successful as you would like to be and enjoy a rewarding career in real estate. For help with any of your real estate needs, as well as any information on a career in real estate, call my brother Mark Skatigna at Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty. His number is 732-657-6200. That's 732-657-6200. Mark Skatigna, Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty. Give him a call. You'll be happy you did. I'm Lou Skatigna, certified financial planner, author, president of AFM Investments, and the host of The Financial Physician, heard each Sunday morning, 7 to 9, right here on 92.7 WOBM, or anytime at thefinancialphysician.com. Don't let interest rates, inflation, and market volatility keep you awake at night. Come to my Tom's River office for a no-obligation, professional diagnosis of your financial health. I'll review your investments, income taxes, and retirement plan. I'll suggest a comprehensive financial estate plan that will improve your financial health, and most importantly, lower your 
financial risk during these uncertain times. If you are retired or planning to retire, I will show you strategies designed to increase your income and protect your estate from nursing home costs. Call us at 732-905-8100 and get on the road to a healthy financial future. That's 732-905-8100. Join me Sunday mornings, 7 to 9, for The Financial Physician right here on 92.7 WOBM or listen to the podcast at thefinancialphysician.com. Securities transactions through Lee Baldwin and Company, member of FINRA and SIPC, registered investment advisory service through Fortitude Advisory Group. Here's Luz Katigna. Let's start off with something less stressful. Let's just talk about some basic estate planning things and mistakes that people are making. Uh, I, I was talking to one of my client's sons this week, and my client, she's been with me 30 years, uh, a wonderful lady. Uh, she's 95 now. She um, she moved from Tom's River to uh Queens, New York, a couple of a couple of years ago, and uh, she's uh, she's at the end right now, and she's in um, uh, I think hospice or something like that. And the son called me, which I've never talked to before. Now this is an adult; it's not a, not a kid, obviously. He's sixty years old, uh, and he calls me distressed, and he says that, and, and this happens in families a lot. He goes, you know, I don't know what's really going on, uh, but you know. My my sister, uh, she's not married. She has this boyfriend she's been with for a long time, and uh, uh, he uh, uh, she lives in his house across the street from my sister. She rents the, the little apartment above the garage for twenty five hundred a month, by the way. Uh, and she, I believe he has a lot of influence over her. And he's worried that maybe he pulled some shenanigans with the will or something like that. And I had to try to calm him down. The guy's not sleeping at night. He's asking his sister uh, for a copy of the will. She does, says she doesn't know where it is, uh, which is a problem in and of itself. They're arguing about uh, should they give her, uh, put her on life support or just let her pass. He wants to let her pass. The, the, the sister kind of agreed. Uh, then the boyfriend got in her ear and tried to talk her out of it. They had a big fight. I mean, these things happen in families all the time. And that's why it's so important that your affairs are in order. I mean, I know my client had a will because we talked about it. I don't have a copy of it. I didn't have nothing to do with it. But, I, you know, that's part of what we do when we're doing financial planning for people. Did, have you done your estate planning? You know, and she said, yeah, she had a will. But nobody knows where it is. And that happens a lot. I mean, you know, my mother-in-law passed. I was the executive of her will, but we couldn't find it. I mean, it was a big problem. And that happens all the time. There's no, they can't find a living will, which is real important here because that would determine what happens with the mother as opposed to the kids fighting about it. Uh, So it's so important, and I can't stress it enough, uh, that why do you want your family to blow up at the end of your life? And and so many, this is just such a common story. And I I don't bring it up just to single this family out. It's just a common story. We've all heard these things. And more families blow up because of, of, of issues regarding your end of life. So, yeah, it's great that you have a will, but where is it? And they still haven't been able to find it. Or, you know, this guy is thinking that maybe my sister hit it on me. And uh, that's not a good thing, obviously, if that's the case. Then there's something really you got to be concerned about. But I told him, I said, look, you know, there's two children here. You know, you're not going to be disinherited. If anybody pulled some shenanigans, you can contest the will. You're going to you're going to be um, 
successful in that. You can't just be disinherited for no reason. You're not estranged or anything. So I kind of put his mind to ease, I think. Uh, but now they got to try to find the will. Otherwise, you got to go and have an administrator named. You got to get a bond. The whole thing is a mess. So you want to make sure that um, your affairs in order. Now, one thing uh, that they can't find as well is the power of attorney. Well, the power of attorney is a very important thing, and a lot of people are confused about it, you know, what it does, what it doesn't. Uh, it just gives somebody the ability to take care of your financial affairs. That is a medical power of attorney that has to do with your making these decisions about life-saving, life-sustaining treatments at the end of your life. It names a power of attorney, a medical power of attorney, to make the ultimate decisions. Well, there is one of these around somewhere, but nobody could find it. So now you're going to have the family fight over, uh, uh, do we pull the plug or not? But let's talk about a financial power of attorney. All right? This gives somebody, could be anybody, the ability to make decisions about your finances. And they could do a lot of things. The power of attorney gives you a lot of rights. It gives you access. Uh, the person that gives the power of attorney is called the principal. The person who has the power of attorney and can act on a principal's behalf is called the agent, to use legal terms. So uh, when you have a power of attorney as an agent, it gives you access to the principal's financial accounts. So you could pay for their health care. You could pay for their housing, any of their bills. You could file taxes on their behalf. You could make investment decisions on their behalf. You could collect debts if money's owed them. You could manage their property. You could apply for uh, public benefits like Medicaid. And uh, it's a very important document. You've got to be sure that whoever you give this power to, that they have your best interest in mind. Now, a power of attorney, the agent is a fiduciary. Now, we're hearing that term fiduciary a lot lately because, you know, financial advisors now, most of them have to be fiduciaries. So what's the term fiduciary mean? I mean, they have to do things that are in your best interest, not theirs. So a lot of people have the misconception that a power of attorney could do anything. They really can't. You know, it has to be in the best interest of the principal that gave them that power. But they still could do a lot of things. And anybody violating their fiduciary duty could face criminal charges or be held in a, a civil lawsuit or something like that. So the fiduciary must act responsibly in a way that is fair to the person whose affairs they are managing. Uh, but there's certain things that a power of attorney can't do. Number one. It can't change the principal's will. Very important. You know, I've had powers of attorneys, you know, tell me that they were going to go change the will. No, no, you can't do that. You have no right to do that. Um, you can't uh, break the fiduciary duty to act in the principal's best interest, as I just said. You can't make any decisions on behalf of the principal after the death. 
The power of attorney loses its effectiveness and validity at the time of death. Now it transfers to the executor, who is named in a will, assuming you have a will and assuming the will can be found. You also, as power of attorney, can't transfer the power of attorney to somebody else. Now, if the agent doesn't want to do it anymore, they can decline their appointment, and now there's no power of attorney. Now, sometimes what people do, and I really don't like this, is they'll name both children the power of attorney. That complicates things. Sometimes what? Now we need two people to agree on everything that is done. Two people have to sign off on everything. Uh, uh, my one son lives in California. My, my daughter lives here in New Jersey. It's, it's a very, very messy thing, naming more than one person as the executor of your will, uh, uh, the power of attorney, uh, the, the medical power of attorney. You don't want to do that. You can name a contingent power of attorney. Meaning that if uh, the person that you name is unable to or unwilling to act as your power of attorney, uh, the contingent one would step in. That's a good thing to do. Uh, but a power of attorney, I've seen this abused so many times. Uh, I had a client who named their son power of attorney. And she found out. A month later, she had two properties, one here in New Jersey, one in Pennsylvania. She had four kids. Her will stated that everything she owns is split evenly amongst her four children. Well, the one son, who was the power of attorney for her, changed the deed in the Pennsylvania house to him. Is that legal? Yeah, it's legal. Uh, It's certainly legal. But is it, can you argue that He wasn't acting as a fiduciary and doing what's the best interest of the mother. Uh, Well, uh, the mother's will uh, was that her four children share equally in her wealth. And this guy basically stole it from his children. He had the power to do it. Now, if you're one of the children disinherited from that house, now you have a legal struggle to prove that the power of attorney uh, wasn't acting as a fiduciary. And that costs money. It takes time. Obviously, the family is going to be fractured at that point. Very, very important that you think these things through. Now, one of the things you want for any of these people, power of attorney, medical power of attorney, uh, executor of your will, who do you pick? Now, don't make an arbitrary designation. A lot of people do this. Well, uh, my oldest son, you know, he's the oldest. I should give it to him. Well, maybe he's not responsible enough to take care of the actions that you need him to take care of. Maybe he has no financial acumen at all. He wouldn't know how to handle your investment accounts or your tax return. Give that power to somebody who is capable of executing it. And again, as I said before, don't name multiple agents. You got to pick one person. Now, a lot of parents say, well, uh, I'm concerned that if I name one, the other ones are going to be hurt, whatever. 
you still have to name one. And tell them all why you chose that person. Now, ideally, that person is going to be responsible, trustworthy, and local. You don't want your power of attorney to be 2,000 miles away from you. It's, it's, it's not functional at that point. And you want to pick the best person for today, who today is the best person. Now, if that person is not the best person tomorrow, you change these things. And that's the thing about powers of attorney, medical power of attorney, executives. You could change these things at any time. And you should when things change. You name your eldest son as your executor of power of attorney. Uh, he moves from uh, New Jersey, where you live, to California. Uh, so you name your daughter, who lives close to you. You change it, as long as you're competent enough to do that. You know, over the next 10 to 20 years, uh, trillions and trillions of dollars are going to transfer generation to generation. And that's why more and more, we're, 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 you know, estate planning is becoming a really big part of the financial planning field. As more and more baby boomers age, people have a lot more wealth now than they did 20, 30 years ago. Finances are more complicated. And it's really important uh, that your estate planning is correct. And so many people make mistakes. I see the worst mistakes and the most costly mistakes done at the end of your life. Let's talk about an example. I mentioned it a couple of months back on this show. Uh, I had a client, one of our loyal listeners, lovely man, came to see me with his wife. He's 80 years old. And he said, Lou, my health is deteriorating. I'm not long for this world. My wife knows nothing about finances. I've been listening to you for 15 years I would like you to be my financial advisor and make sure that you take care and make sure my wife is taken care of properly and that her finances are, man- her finances are managed uh, properly. I trust you out of all the advisors I've, I've ever heard. Uh, would you please take me on? And, of course, we did. And we transferred uh, three, four $400,000 in investments that he had uh, and moved it to us. Shortly thereafter, a couple of years later, he died. So now we're dealing with the with the widow. Uh, we change all the accounts into her name, and her health was starting to deteriorate. So I'm thinking about how we're going to protect this estate from potential nursing home costs later on. Uh, protect the estate for her four children. So I said, you know, maybe you should consider, you know, gifting, you know, your personal account. Uh, to one of your children and get it out of your name and start the five-year look-back period. She goes, Lou, that makes a great great amount of sense to me. I, I'd hate to see all the money my husband worked for his whole life disappear uh, to nursing home. And that's a big fear that we all have. That comes up in every first appointment I have with older clients is, you know, what about nursing home? How do I protect this? I have a friend or a family member that lost everything. We all know the nightmare stories of what happens in nursing homes and the cost and all that stuff. So I said, do you have, you know, your children? Now, now when we, we start talking about these things, I have to ask a lot of nosy questions. 
I said, well, what child do you think is most responsible or local that you would want to do this with? Uh, she goes, ah, my, my one son lives locally, um, and um, I think he'd be the one. All right, bring him in. Let's talk. Well, before he came in, I asked her. I said, is he trustworthy? Is he going to do the right thing by his brothers and sisters? Uh, uh, is he uh, financially set? I mean, you know, you don't want to give, you know, $300,000 and put it in the name of one of your children who's in financial distress or who, or who has credit problems or marital problems or anything like that or gambling problems or drug problems. You know, you have to. I ask all these questions. Yeah. Is this son a substance abuser or a gambler or any other vice? What's his financial situation? Does he have debt? What's his marital situation? Now, these are things you wouldn't think that a financial advisor would be asking you, but it has to be asked. It's part of financial planning. It's part of this end-of-life planning. And then we decide. Now, most of the time, this works out fine. The parent dies. The one son, the money's in his name. He shares it with his three brothers and sisters. And that's the end of it. If five years go by and the mother needs a nursing home, she'll qualify for Medicaid and protect that estate for her children. But what happened in this case? What happened in this case? I get a phone call. No, I get a notice that the account is being transferred. Now, it's in the son's name now at my firm. That the account's being transferred to some other place. And it disturbed me because, wait, wait a second here. This is the mother's money that the dad, you know, that, that her husband wanted me to manage till she died. I just moved it into his name to protect the estate for him and his brothers and sisters. Uh, but he had other ideas. So I call the mother and say, you know, your son's transferring this account out. You know, you know, I made a promise to your husband that, you know, I was going to take care of you, manage your money for you. I don't know what's going on here. Are you aware of this? She goes, yeah, I'm aware of it. Yeah, he was pressuring me and pressuring me to, to, to deal with his guy. All right, and this is what you want to do? And she said, yes. So the next day, I get a phone call from the son who's infuriated that I talked to somebody else about his account. Now, technically, he's right. I mean, once the money's gifted to him in his name, it's his money. And technically, I'm not supposed to talk to anybody else about it, but I didn't care. I felt the right thing to do was at least let the mother know that he was doing this. It's our money. Not technically, but it is. So we, we, we moved it to his name for estate planning purposes. And boy, was he living with me. Nasty, cursing at me. I had to hang up the phone on him. And I told him, I said, wait a second. I said, this doesn't smell right. I said, I made a promise to your dad. You know, he came to me uh, to take care of your mother. And now you're taking this money out. I was the one who suggested to you to put it in your name to protect your inheritance and now you have a problem with me. So the fact that he was angry that I talked to his mother, my radar went up. There's something untoward going on here. I don't know what it is. But there was nothing I could do about it, right? It's his money. He could do whatever he wants. So he transfers it out. And uh, I don't hear from the mother 
for a year and a half. Then the mother calls my office recently, and she says, shortly after we moved the money into my son's name, he died of cancer. And apparently the money was jointly with his wife. So now his wife has the money. And the wife won't tell the mother-in-law where the money is uh, and apparently has no intention of sharing it with his brothers and sisters when the mother dies. And she's distraught. And she asked me what she could do. And I said, you can't do anything. I asked you if your son was trustworthy, if he would do the right thing. And apparently what he did, he knew he was dying and he wanted to take care of his wife and the hell with his siblings. And he put it joint with her. Now, even if it wasn't joint with her, she would get it if his will said everything goes to my wife, which everybody's will says. Right? Now, he should have changed his will and said, if I predecease uh, my mother or, or my brothers and sisters, uh, if I die, just if I die, this account is split amongst my three brothers and sisters. That's what he should have done. I mean, that would be the proper thing to do. But he didn't. And I get just by my conversations with him. By the way, I had two or three conversations with the guy was a real jerk. Probably the biggest jerk I've ever dealt with in my 40-year career. And I've had a lot of jerks I've dealt with in families. Trust me on that one. But this guy was a real jerk. Uh, and I was certain that he was doing something untoward with his family, and I couldn't do a thing about it. And I felt impotent. And it really bothered me because it was my suggestion that she transfer that money to one of her children's accounts, her names. And this is things that can happen if you don't do the proper estate planning, you don't think things through. And uh, as f- apparently, as far as I know, she's made no um, no progress with the sister, the daughter-in-law. And the daughter-in-law has no legal obligation to do anything. Has no legal obligation to even talk to the mother-in-law. No legal obligation to split this money with his brothers and sisters. And most likely will keep it all for herself. Totally screwing the mother's children, out of their inheritance. So make sure you think these things through. And I, this is relatively rare in my career. I, I haven't seen too many of these situations, but they happen all the time. Money makes people crazy. Trust me on this one. I've seen it all. In my 40 years of financial, so I've seen it all. I've seen the worst in people. When it comes to money, a close knit family that was close their whole lives, 60 years, money gets involved, an inheritance, uh, this kind of situation, and the family disintegrates, becomes estranged. Who's suing who and everything else? I hear this all the time. People uh, don't trust their brothers and sisters. Uh, I haven't heard, you know, where's the will, this, that. And then you start thinking, well, he's the executor. He's going to steal money. and All this kind of stuff goes on. Now, thankfully, in most families, this is not an issue. I mean, everything is done right and it's unfair. Uh, the vast majority of people, obviously, are good people and wouldn't screw their brothers and sisters. Uh, 
but again, money makes people do things uh, that they normally wouldn't do. And the saying in the Bible, you know, it, the love of the money is the root of all evil. A lot of people get that mistake. It's not money is the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. And that's why you have to vet, think it through, make sure you're doing the right thing. When you transfer funds or you transfer the deed in your house to somebody. Another big mistake people make uh, at the end of their lives uh, is instead of giving a power of attorney to somebody, what they do is they put their name on the account. Oh, I put my daughter's name on my investment account because, you know, uh, my health is not good. I can't deal with the broker anymore. She's going to take care of it, blah, 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 blah. But meanwhile, her will says three children share equally in her uh, assets. But meanwhile, she just disinherited her kids because by title, she's the survivor on that account. She gets the money. Her brothers and sisters could do nothing. Now, she could do the right thing and gift the money to her brothers and sisters, but she's not legally obligated to do so. And I'll never forget this this example. It's over 20 years old. Uh, husband and wife comes to see me. The mother had recently died. The, daughter, uh, the wife's mother had recently died, and they wanted me to help settle the estate. I said, okay, let me see the will. The will states my assets are to be split equally amongst my two children. So I said to the daughter, I said, well, what are the assets? She goes, a $900,000 Merrill Lynch account and a $300,000 home. Okay, let me see the statement from the Merrill Lynch account. Well, the Merrill Lynch account had the mother's name and the daughter's name on it. And by the way, the daughter's name was also on the deed of the house. I don't know why they did that, but she did that as well as a joint owner. So I told the daughter, I said, by title, the will has no effect. The will, the will doesn't affect things that are jointly held. It moves to the survivor on the account, bypassing the will and disinheriting your brother. So you are, uh, are the sole beneficiary of a million three, whatever it was. Well, her husband almost fell off his chair. But now I had to talk to her after that. Did she do the right thing or not? I don't know. But she doesn't have to. She doesn't have to. Legally, she does not have to. So get proper advice. Make sure you know your family and you know them very well. Discuss these things with everybody in the family. I always say, you know, if you do something in your will, like say, uh, well, 70% of my assets are going to my daughter because she struggles and, you know, she has three kids. My son's a doctor. He doesn't need the money, so I'm only going to give him 30%. Make sure he knows that. Don't let him find out after you die and have hard feelings to his sister and to you. Explain. Say, John, right, you know, you're doing well. I'm going to give most of the, the my estate to your sister. She really needs it. She's got the kids and everything else. It's a lot better doing it that way than finding out after you die when the will is read. In my book, I write, the will is a terrible place to keep secrets. Now, a lot of people don't like to discuss this stuff with their kids. They're very, very private. They don't want to bring up money. You know, I have, I have clients, you know, I had a client recently that has $2 million 
And she got two or three kids. And I said, does your children know how much money you have? She goes, no. I go, why not? Well, uh, I don't know. I don't think they need to know everything about my finances. Well, you're towards the end of your life right now. Don't you think it's a good time to sit down with your family and have this discussion? People are very, very strange when it comes to money, especially the older people. They come from a different school. You know, nowadays, I would think people are a little more flexible uh, about discussing this stuff with their kids. But the real older people, the people in their 80s and 90s, you know, they're a different generation. But that's another thing at the end of your life. A good thing to do is have a family meeting. And discuss the will, where it is, the power of attorney, who's named, the executor who's named, why, your medical power of attorney. Another thing to discuss or write it down is uh, the little things that aren't in the will. Who gets what? I tell you, more people fight over dad's golf clubs or the picture hanging over the the fireplace that's been there for 30 years uh, than money sometimes. Mom's wedding ring. You got two daughters, right? Who gets mom's wedding ring? Well, you better you better write that down or discuss it with them. Why? Who's getting it and why? I have a, a form, a template that I, I've written uh, called the Estate Letter of Instruction. I did it 25 years ago. Uh, and it basically states all your accounts, where they are, where your will is, where your safe deposit box is, anybody who owes you money, uh, any debts that you have. It's a real good resource, trust me. Your loved ones will love this when you pass. When you have that family meeting, you, you, you give them that or tell them where it is, you discuss it with them. So important to do this. Now, I do this in my office a lot with my clients. And I'll sometimes suggest it myself. I'll tell my client. Now, you never need to do this when you're still married, okay? If you're still both married, this is not the time to have that discussion. It's when you're single. Because when you're married, the spouse is going to get everything. The spouse is going to be your executive. The spouse, chances are everything's jointly held anyway. Or have beneficiaries on your IRA or so forth. It's always the spouse. There's no real generational wealth transfer here. One spouse is going to make medical decisions for the other. The children aren't involved in this. But when I have a widow or a widower, they're old, their health is declining, I tell them, look, let's have a family meeting. And let's discuss all of this. And we do have that family meeting with all the children. Now, sometimes all the children can't come to my office, so we put them on a conference call on the speakerphone. And we discuss all these things. But most importantly, who's going to do what and why? Who's going to get what and why? This is what I want done to me or not done to me at the end of my life. And this is where all these important documents are. It's amazing how many people don't do that. Estate planning is a very important part of financial planning. We're doing a lot of it now as... My clients now are entering, the, my clients have been with me decades are now passing on. Uh, we do a lot of this end-of-life planning, and it's amazing how many mistakes people make. 
All right, there you have it. Two hours of the best of the financial physician. Hopefully you learned something. You enjoyed our program today. We'll be, we will be back live next Sunday uh, to talk about money, markets, and politics and to do our normal show. Uh, thanks for joining us. Remember the website. The podcast is there at thefinancialphysician.com. Love your emails. Lou at thefinancialphysician.com. I answer each and every email. You want to make a financial consultation with me? No obligation, no cost. 732-905-8100 is the phone number. Have a wonderful week and join me next Sunday and every Sunday for the next edition of The Financial Physician.